Hey, this is Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Now today, we actually have some good news. Yeah, good news. Yay. You, I feel like on the show so often, we're talking about complete bummers. Yes, this is true. Um, this episode will have some bummers, but it's not a complete bummer. It has a bit of a happy ending, which is that Ireland, last month, voted to end the country's ban on abortion. Yes. So that is very good news and is a very long time coming. And today, we just wanted to talk a little bit about the history of Ireland's abortion laws and how we got to where we are today. Yes, because terminating a pregnancy has been a crime in Ireland since 1861. But the debate really got started in the 1970s when abortion laws and attitudes were changing in many places. Exactly. The UK legalized abortion up to 28 weeks in 1967. And here in the United States, the Supreme Court essentially legalized abortion in 1973 with Roe v. Wade. So basically, conservative politicians and the Catholic Church were pretty alarmed by this trend, and they wanted to preempt any attempt to loosen the Irish ban on abortion— So they launched an active campaign to introduce a constitutional amendment, which ended with a referendum in 1983. 67% of Irish voters voted for the Eighth Amendment, which basically banned abortion. Right. The Eighth Amendment says, The state acknowledges the right to life of the unborn and with due regard to the equal right to the life of the mother, guarantees in its laws to respect and, as far as practicable, by its laws to defend and vindicate that right. This law basically meant that You couldn't get an abortion in Ireland, even in cases of rape or incest, and in some cases, even if it meant that you would die. Yeah, it was fairly strict. One of the big flashpoints on the issue in Ireland happened in 1992 with the case of X. X was an anonymous 14-year-old girl who, after being raped, became pregnant. Her family planned to have her travel to the UK to get an abortion, only to find out that doing so was against the law. Ireland's attorney general blocked her from traveling abroad through an injunction. Basically, this girl was super depressed. She became suicidal, and her case really kind of became a a flashpoint. It went to the Supreme Court, which lifted the injunction and ruled that abortions could take place if there was a real risk to the life of the mother, including from suicide. But since then, several attempts to remove suicide as grounds for abortion, including a referendum in 2002, have failed. But that Supreme Court's ruling did not make it into legislation for another 20 years. Wow. The, this case led to some changes. The government had a referendum on three questions. Whether suicide should be removed as grounds for abortion, whether Irish people had a right to travel for abortion care, and whether information about abortion should be available in Ireland. The Irish voted to keep suicide as a legitimate reason that abortion be permitted and voted for the right to travel and information. Two referendums in November of 1992 made it legal to travel abroad to seek abortions. 62.4% of voters voted for this. And to share information about foreign abortion services within Ireland. Nine women and girls leave Ireland every day to get abortion services. Wow. I mean, on the one hand, it's good that people had the ability to go you know, to the UK to get an abortion if they needed it. But that's not accessible, and it's expensive, and not everybody can make that journey. And so if the only way that you have to get an abortion in Ireland is to spend a lot of money to go to a different place to get it, that's not really accessible. And if your life depends on getting that abortion, that really could be a death sentence. Absolutely. 
More than 170,000 women and girls have traveled to another country for an abortion since 1980. And the vast majority went to Britain, while a smaller number went to the Netherlands. Getting the boat is expensive and laborious and, yeah, inaccessible. The Irish have all kinds of euphemisms for leaving the country to get an abortion, like getting the boat or simply traveling. But it, it definitely hits lower-income people harder. I mean, that's a very expensive Yeah, and I think it's important to point out that we're not just talking about Ireland. Here in the United States, there are places where you have to make a very expensive and very laborious journey to get an abortion. A pregnant person who lives in Rapid City, South Dakota, for instance, would have to drive 318 miles to reach Billings, Montana, to get an abortion. That was That's the nearest facility that provides abortion services. And so we were talking about it in regards to Ireland, but here in the United States, there are places where it is also very inaccessible and it is also a very expensive journey, particularly for those who don't have access or are low income or otherwise marginalized. Absolutely. And we also have, some of you may have seen in the news, because it's kind of been making the news a lot lately, that uh, we have hospitals that are like run by Catholicism, like Catholic hospitals, but they're not outwardly, there's sort of no signage to saying that. And and a lot of times if you're in an emergency situation, and here we're talking particularly about if you're pregnant and you're taken in an ambulance to the nearest hospital, you might not know. And then you get there and they will not allow you to have an abortion if you're like having a miscarriage or anything like that. And it's it's led to, I think, some serious health problems and I believe death as well. Yeah, according to Rewire, new reporting that just came out literally an hour ago, about one in six women in the United States name a Catholic facility as their go-to hospital for reproductive health care. But more than a third of these women are unaware that their hospital is Catholic, according to a survey revealing an information gap about Catholic hospitals. And so you're right. I want to make sure it's clear that we all have a long way to go on this issue and that Ireland, the United States, this is stuff that's happening that we're all sort of dealing with. We have to get better because people's lives are on the line. Yeah, absolutely. In British Vogue, Irish journalist Lynn Einwright imagined what could have happened to her if her unwanted pregnancy had happened back home in Ireland instead of in London. She writes, Perhaps I would have been one of them, making the same surreptitious arrangements, booking days off work, telling the necessary fibs to employers and family, boarding a cheap Ryanair flight at 6 a.m. as if going on holiday. I would find the hundreds of pounds necessary to pay a private clinic in Liverpool or London. Later, my abortion fund not stretching to a hotel room, I would bleed and sweat in a cheap hostel many, many miles from home. And I think she really captures what this situation looked like for so many Irish women. And those were the lucky ones, the ones who could afford to make that journey. Yeah, and it's already a difficult situation to be in. And then to be in the hotel probably by yourself after in pain, miserable just expounds on how difficult it already is. It doesn't need to be that miserable. It shouldn't be that miserable. If there are things we can do to improve it, we should. If you listen to the episode of the Unladylike podcast, their first episode is about um, paying for abortions. And one of the women they talked to in the episode, she basically had like the nicest abortion you know ever was in a private facility, and you know there was no protesters outside. It was a very you know she went into a pretty nondescript office. And for every smooth abortion out there that goes well and, you know, it, it's just go to a place and you have an appointment and it's fine, it's done, you pay for it, done. There are people out there who have the worst experience where it's, you know, they have to scramble to find money and they, you know, 
it's a medical procedure and it should be a smooth experience for everyone. Everyone deserves to have their medical care be something that is smooth because if you, if you need medical services, you're already probably stressed out enough. And just like any other medical service, if it's within our power to make it smooth for the people who are undergoing it, we should be. It should be smooth for everybody. Absolutely. Like I remember listening to that on Lady Like episode and thinking like anybody who has to get an abortion, I want them to have an experience like that where it's not terrible. <laughs> yeah. And going back to the Catholic Church, they have a lot to do with this, this situation in Ireland. From Rewire, the Catholic Church has been deeply intertwined with the Irish state from its founding. When in separating from the English colonial control, Ireland sought a national identity that was different, celebrating the Catholicism that had been marginalized under British rule. Today, though its influence has diminished, it controls primary schools and hospitals across the country. And though it has played a smaller role in the repeal campaign, Healy wrote, Behind the scenes, the church are backing the no in a major way. But the church's reputation was damaged by revelations around the Magdalene laundries, state-funded church-run institutions where girls were locked away and put to unpaid labor for a range of sins that often include sexual behavior and unwed pregnancy. That reputation was further hurt by the discovery in 2017 of a mass grave of children at the mother and baby home at Tuam, where unwed mothers had given birth. Yikes. That's horrifying, but I think it also really goes to underscore how tight of a hold the Catholic Church has on Ireland, culturally, uh, politically, all of that. Those sentiments run so deep. That is really seems to dictate how folks feel about this issue for a very long time. Yeah. This about brings us to another flashpoint in this debate. But first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So in 2012, we come to another kind of touchstone, a big event in this debate, and that is with um, Savita Praveen Halapetavar. Savita was a dentist who was born in India, and she moved to Ireland in 2008, and she settled in Galway with her husband Praveen. On October 21st, 2012, she went to University Hospital Galway after complaining of back pain and eventually suffered a miscarriage at 17 weeks. Her miscarriage went on for days, but saying they were bound by Irish abortion law, hospital staff would not provide any medical aid to speed up the end of her pregnancy. A midwife manager told her she couldn't terminate her pregnancy, quote, because Ireland is a Catholic country. Mm. Yeah. And according to the coroner, the words, quote, went around the world. And I would agree with that. Yeah, this sort of became a galvanizing moment, particularly that comment that the midwife manager made that Ireland is a Catholic country. It's interesting, they've identified the woman who said that and she admits saying it and she feels bad about saying it, but I don't think that she knew that her comments would become this flashpoint for getting people so angry and so upset about this issue that it would ultimately spark this kind of massive change. Oh, yeah, I would bet she was quite surprised that it took off. I'm sure to her it was probably, like, just fact, kind of. Yeah, that's what she says. They interviewed her, and she said that she was just trying to explain, you know, the why of this abortion law. And she she's right that that was, that was the case, but using that as a—basically as the explanation for why someone is going to die is just so deeply, deeply, deeply upsetting— Another thing to note about Savita's situation is that doctors told her that her miscarriage was inevitable and she was still denied an abortion. 
there was no saving this pregnancy. It, she was going to lose that pregnancy irregardless, and they still let her die. Yeah, which I find, I mean, hard for me to think of a way to defend that, and especially, like, well, we're just a Catholic country. Like, I suppose that goes to show how acceptable we find, or at least in some religions, we're able to justify the death of the woman rather than (laughs) provide them this service that has been deemed immoral. Right. Yeah. And she died a painful, agonizing... Long. Long, and probably emotionally... I mean, she, she died a really, really unimaginably cruel death. Yeah. On all fronts, emotionally, mentally, physically, on all fronts, her death was unimaginably cruel. Yeah. A report by the health service executive found later that there had been, quote, an overemphasis by hospital staff on the welfare of Mrs. Halapanavar's unviable fetus and an underemphasis on her deteriorating health. And right. they could, it sounds like they could have saved her. Yeah. Yeah, and they, if you know if the miscarriage is inevitable. What are you doing, right? Like, right. like who are you helping? No one. You're no killing one. someone. You're killing someone. Yeah, yeah. And you're making them die a agonizing death. Like, it just is so awful. Yeah. It just is so awful. As awful as this was, her death became a symbol, sparking protests and vigils all across Ireland. Campaigners began urging that folks remember Savita and calling for change to Ireland's strict abortion laws. Here's Ruth Coppinger, an Irish solidarity people before profit politician speaking at a rally to remember Savita. Uh, friends, we're here today in huge numbers to show, as Sinead said, our solidarity with the family and the friends of Savita. And we want to send a message to her family that you have huge support here in Ireland. Absolutely massive support. And that pretty much brings us to where we're at today. You know, her tragic death was really this flashpoint for enough outrage and anger and justified rage to coalesce to get someplace on this issue. I think so many women saw this story and thought, that could be me. That could be my kid. I don't want to live in an Ireland where that happens for no reason. Yeah. And so people came together and they made a change. And we're going to talk more about that. But first, we're going to take one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yeah, so last month, Ireland held a vote to repeal the Eighth Amendment. Thousands of Irish immigrants flew from all over the world back to Ireland to vote, including a few Sminty listeners. That's right. Shout out to Instagram user J.O. Grady, who told me that she came all the way from Boston to Ireland to vote. Yes. So you go. Good for you. And this is the stuff that, like, warms my organizer heart. People getting together and saying, hey, all of y'all young people who left Ireland for other places, we need you to, if you can do it, come back, vote, help be the force that pushes the needle on this issue. Yeah. And they shared their journeys using the hashtag home to vote. And if you scrolled that hashtag, there were so many brilliant stories of people 
traveling from far and wide about why they were doing it. Some people said things like, oh, I didn't want, this could be me. Some people expressed interest in moving back to Ireland one day, but they didn't want to move, live in an Ireland where basic healthcare was just this inaccessible. And really, it was, it was quite a, a beautiful sort of touching thing. Here's the London Irish abortion rights campaign video urging young Irish people to come home to vote. If you're an Irish citizen and have lived in Ireland in the past 18 months, wherever you are in the world right now, you may be eligible to vote. Three years ago, young Irish people travelled from all over the planet to make Ireland a more equal place. We need you again. On the 25th of May, we're getting a once-in-a-generation chance to make Ireland a safer, fairer place for women. Let's do it. Together. Come home to vote yes to repeal the Eighth Amendment. Together. 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 Lekela. Together. 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 For yes. Wonderful. Yeah. And it is. I think it's the organizer in me applauds each and every one of those those Irish folks who came back to vote because, you know, that's no easy feat. You know, flying from Boston, L.A., wherever, to Ireland to vote. Like, not everybody can do that. But I think it, again, it goes to underscore this idea that if you have the ability, you have the money, you can get the time off, whatever, to make that trip, you it's important. And I remember seeing someone's sign when I was looking through the hashtag. The sign said, I am making this journey so the women who can't don't have to. So they don't have to get on that boat and they don't have to scrape together that money or stay in that hostel. It's like, I can, I can make this journey so that other women don't have to. Yeah. And um, some of the women, or I'm assuming women, some of the people <laughs> returned home had their flights paid for by generous strangers in the Abroad for Yes Facebook group with over 3,800 members willing to sponsor flights, which is also very lovely. It is lovely. You know that expression... Feminism isn't something you are, it's something that you do. Yeah. That's, that, that's what this is to me in a kind of way. It's putting your money where your mouth is and doing that thing, whether it's paying for somebody else's flight because you can't vote in Ireland, or it's scraping together the money and taking the time off work and going home to Ireland to vote. I think it's just, it's just really powerful. It's yeah. really something. Savita's parents made a video before the vote urging Irish voters to vote yes and remember his daughter. And after the vote, he thanked the people of Ireland for really coming out in droves and supporting the, the tragic loss of his daughter and keeping that in mind at the polls. He said he was, quote, very happy at the result of Ireland's referendum. We've got justice for Savita, and what happened to her will not happen to any other family right now. I have no words to express my gratitude to the people of Ireland at this historic moment. In 2015, many Irish people similarly went home to vote to pass marriage equality, and, you know, while pushes like home to vote and, and urging folks to come home and make their voices heard if they can are obviously awesome, Connor O'Neill, the co-founder of We're Coming Back, a campaign for emigrant voting rights, points out at the Irish Times that Irish citizens shouldn't actually have to do this. They shouldn't have to go all the way back to Ireland just to make their voice heard. He writes, citizens shouldn't need to do this. It's expensive, exclusionary, and for every incredible home to voter, someone couldn't travel. Most countries recognize this, but Ireland remains one of the few democracies with no facility for overseas voting, a legacy of our high rates of emigration and the failure of successive governments to put an effective system in place. Our rules are some of the most restrictive in the world. No postal facility exists, and under the Electoral Acts, returning to vote beyond a meager 18 months abroad is a crime punishable up to two years' imprisonment. Many voters won't have known this. On a three-year working visa, Surely the ballots waiting at home don't come with criminal charges. Given the landslide result, even the wildest estimates of how many returned 
couldn't have impacted the outcome. But the absurd contradiction remains. We cheer these voters home, but our laws treat them as criminals. Yeah, it should not be that difficult as a citizen to vote in your countries and things impacting your country in a country that you have citizenship in. But nonetheless, yay, (laughs) the campaign was successful. Rewire News quotes one longtime campaigner, Izzy Kamikaze. One of the things in this campaign is that women have talked about that. Women have kept that silent for years and have talked to their friends and family about that and about why the law needs to change. This whole silent underground campaign that is going on with women who are talking about their personal experiences under the law. And not just of abortion, because the Eighth Amendment also affects the care of women in every pregnancy. Absolutely correct. Something I love about Izzy Kamikaze's comments here is that they really help us understand that the Eighth Amendment was obviously about access to abortion, but also, even if you are someone who is carrying a pregnancy to term, you are still impacted by this legislation. It's not just for people who are seeking abortions or to terminate a pregnancy. Take, for instance, the case of Mother B. In 2016, Mother B wanted to give birth vaginally, but she was shocked when the health service executive, or the HSE, applied to the high court to force her to have a cesarean section against her will to vindicate the right to life of her unborn child. They sought permission to keep Mother B from leaving the hospital and to enlist police to arrest her if she did. The fetus was given its own attorney. There was a court injunction, and ultimately the court allowed her to give birth vaginally. But this just goes to show this legislation is obviously about abortion, but anybody who wants their reproductive rights respected, whether it is the right to carry your pregnancy to term the way that you want or the right to not do so, anybody along that spectrum has a stake in this conversation. Absolutely. And ultimately, the yes vote did win by a landslide of 66.4% of voters voting to repeal the amendment. So it looks like a lot of women are, are, I keep assuming women, but this is an issue that impacts everybody. Yeah. And I mean, women aren't the only folks who get pregnant. Right. need, Need to say that, you know, anybody with a uterus. Anybody with a stake in healthcare and reproductive rights. They understood what you were saying, Bridget, that it's not just abortion. This, this impacts so much, so much more. And I'm, I'm very, very happy that it was, uh, <laughs> uh, the eighth was repealed. I am too. So you might be asking, what happens now? Well, in the short term, nothing. Nothing will change immediately. According to Wendy Lyon, a lawyer and pro-choice organizer based in Ireland, Because the anti-choice law is still on the books, we're pretty much guaranteed that there's going to be some attempt to challenge it. They've done this with pretty much every referendum that has advocated a liberal agenda, she says. They failed every time, but they will try it again. And Dublin City Councilor Ellis Ryan points out that another important aspect of this conversation going forward is how abortion access will be handled in Ireland. It is not enough for it to be legal. It also has to be accessible. And really the only way that you can do that is through a public health service. That is going to be the next battle for socialist campaigners, pro-choice campaigners, is how can we ensure that this is not yet another service that is outsourced to a private company that doesn't have women's best interests at heart. And I think that really is so true that it's not enough for this to just be legal. It has to also be accessible. Right. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, exactly. And going back to the U.S. for a second, abortion access here remains under attack, and campaigners are looking to Ireland as a a beacon of light. In Rhode Island, campaigners are pushing for the Reproductive Health Care Act, the RHA, and pointing to Ireland's recent landslide vote to legalize abortion care as an example to follow. So this is 
having an impact outside of Ireland as well. That's always kind of a like kind of comforting reminder. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're this is global. We're all in this right. together. This is a, this is a global fight in Rhode Island right now. If Roe v. Wade were overturned, which I know, I know that sat, to some of you that might sound unthinkable, but anti-choice politicians are waging attacks on it every day in so many different ways. If it were overturned in Rhode Island, abortion would be illegal unless the Reproductive Health Care Act, which right now is stuck in committee, was passed. The pro-choice legislation would codify Roe v. Wade protections into state law. And I think why Rhode Island is looking to Ireland is because Rhode Island is the most heavily Catholic state in the United States. And so a lot of folks, similarly to Ireland, might think, oh, our state is just so culturally and politically gripped by the Catholic Church that this thing will never pass. But Ireland shows us that's not necessarily true. Right. I did not know that about Rhode Island. Yeah. Huh. Hillary Levy Friedman, president of the Rhode Island chapter of the National Organization for Women, said the state is looking toward Ireland as a model that heavily Catholic cultures can still move the needle on reproductive rights. Quote, one of the biggest issues raised in opposition to the Reproductive Health Care Act in Rhode Island is that this is the most Catholic state in America. That said, Ireland, a nation founded on the basis of Catholicism, has just made abortion legal. So clearly, it can be done. It can be done. It can be and done. And it was done. Yes. Y'all did it. And again, it makes me so sad that it took a tragedy of someone dying a needless, a needless and painful, unacceptable death to get where we are. Right. But I'm just so happy that voters in Ireland remembered Savita. Yes. And um, Bridget and I were in the studio when the that news we got the news about it <laughs> we were we were very excited we were very i was excited. i was checking checking my phone every 5 minutes yeah. i had a feeling it was going to i i had a feeling it was going to pass by a landslide mm-hmm. i did not express those feelings i learned from a certain 2016 election that you probably don't want to get too ahead of yourself about verbalizing your thoughts on how an election is going to go but i was pretty confident it was going to be a landslide I didn't want to say anything, but I was very confident. Yes, and we are happy that that turned out to be the case. So that's that's what we have to say. Uh, please, Irish, anyone, any Irish listeners out there, we'd love to hear from you. And not just because we love your accents. <laughs> no, because we would be imagining the accent in our heads, since generally there is no uh, audio component of mail or social media that you we can receive. Attach, you can do an attachment. Oh, well, <laughs> yes. Think big, Annie. <laughs> I, I'm still stuck in my ways of text. <laughs> I'm behind the times. Behind the times. But speaking of, this brings us to listener mail. Our first letter, letter is from Renee. Hey, ladies, I love your show and recently listened to the Action Figures episode followed by the Gender Reveal episode, and I thought I would write in. I'm 32 and identify myself proudly as a nerd. I think that has made me seek out the clothes I or my daughter Gemma want, no matter the department label, but it's very frustrating that not only do girls not always get the cool nerdy things we love, but the sizes are so different in each department. I recently went through her clothes and everything in a 5T from the girls' department was too small, both short and tight, but her stuff from the boys' section still had room to grow. I also have issues about how a lot of kids' clothing lines sexualize girls from birth with tighter, shorter clothes, even bikinis for infants. 
Not only is that disgusting, but not every child is built alike. So the sorts you think are okay length on your thin athletic toddler make my thicker built big booty one look not great, to put it nicely. From birth, I've just turned space, science, and several fandoms of clothing. If I saw something I liked, we bought it. If she wanted a Star Wars shirt like Daddy, I found her one. Jimma will be four on Saturday, and she has been telling us for over a year she wants to be an astronaut when she grows up. I see a definite connection in the clothes that she wears and her attitude towards what are typically labeled boy. She also loves fluffy cats and pink, but will argue the fact she knows more about why the sun shines with you. Raising a girl is so much fun, but we make a decided effort in our home to literally encourage her to be whatever she wants, not just what society thinks she should be. I'm continuing to foster her dreams with toys. For her birthday this year, she'll be getting the new American Girl doll, Luciana, who also wants to be an astronaut when she grows up. I knew that toys mattered, but your show definitely reinforced that for me. I've attached pictures of the past four years of her outfits below because I'm totally biased. She's adorable. She was a rock star astronaut for Halloween, so I thought the Bowie makeup was appropriate. The pictures are so cute. Happy birthday, Gemma. Yeah, happy birthday. She sounds so cute. I know. A rock star astronaut is going to argue with you about the sun shining. This is... My time. You're <laughs> like, I want to meet this kid. She, <laughs> sounds like, she sounds like a rad kid. She really does. I mean, she sounds really cool. And yeah, I'm happy that she has such an awesome mom. Yeah. Yeah. Our next email is from Quentin. Quentin writes, I just wanted to reach out to you both following the Female Action Figures podcast. I especially identified with the missed potential due to marketing across the gender boundary, but from the other direction. My family and I are major Disney fans, and my personal favorite character is Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell's awesome, by the way. Disney launched the Disney Fairies line back in 2005 with toys, apparel, and movies. In this franchise, Tinkerbell solved her problems through tinkering, which basically means building and engineering. I saw her as an early STEM role model for young kids, and especially young girls. As an engineer, I fell in love with the character. In the 2009 direct-to-home film Tinkerbell and the Lost Treasure, she built a hot air balloon from a found item and even had her own adventuring outfit. They've since phased out this line, which I think is a missed opportunity. Every visit to the Disney store or Disney parks, I'm always on the lookout for Tinkerbell merchandise. A few years back, I did come across a great dark blue hoodie with a nice Tinkerbell design on the back, and I wore the heck out of it. But I've never found anything like it since. Everything is strongly marketed at girls and women. I guess in their minds, guys can't be fans of a character or a Disney princess. As you discussed in the podcast, they really seem to be missing an opportunity if they just included a few more gender-neutral options for their characters. This applies not only to making action figures for girls, but opening up some of their other great characters for guys as well. Quentin, I cannot agree more. Uh, I really want to see this hoodie. I want to see all the Tinkerbell items that you've amassed. And I didn't, it didn't even occur to me that Tinkerbell was this like mini-engineer fairy tinkering. No, it didn't to me either. And I'm, I'm so glad. To know that, but absolutely, like, I'm all for it's okay if you want to, you can play whatever with whatever toys you want. We don't have to say they're for X gender or X gender. So, yeah, I'm all about, all about toys for everybody. <laughs> here, here. Yeah. So thank you to both of them for writing. Thanks as always to our producers, Dylan Fagan and Kathleen Quillian. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And you can find us on social, can't you, Bridget? You sure can. We're on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast and on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. 